From University of Minnesota Rochester Alumni Relations, welcome to the second season of Beyond the Nest. I'm Marco Lands, UMR Director of Alumni and Development Relationships. This season, Raptor alumni check in with UMR faculty members and student success coaches on life after University Square, how undergraduate research has shaped their career pathway, and the importance of mentors in one's life. Today, 2018 graduate Muhammad Adani chats with UMR biology professor Rachel Olson. Currently, Muhammad is pursuing a PhD at the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. His doctoral thesis focuses on developing strategies to confront health disparities in regenerative medicine treatments. I am currently a second year PhD student at Mayo Clinic Graduate School here in Rochester campus. So Mayo Clinic have multiple tracks for the PhD. I am in the clinical and translational science track. So it's a little bit unique track where uh, the research that you do, you know, if you are interested in translational research where, well, whatever you do, see it through the pipeline from patients to, you know, application, all the stuff is, is pretty cool. So that I'm, I'm in that track. I, they, the classes that we take are a little bit unique. Uh, we take a lot of variety of classes, advanced epi, advanced statistics, and basic science biology. So it's all over, which is the key here to prepare uh, the folks if they are if they are interested in working, let's say, government or organizational leaders, something like that. They are they can be they are able to speak multiple languages in terms of the science. They understand the basic mechanisms of uh, research. They understand the clinical the the uh, regulation of science, the RB and FDA process and all that stuff. So that's my track. I'm actually curious because last I knew, I mean I, I yes. wrote letters is that you were <laughs> yep. working in Carly's lab and last you, you were hoping to continue in her lab. But so yes. where'd you end up? One of my goals was always to uh, uh, maybe go back to my home country of Somalia or in, in Middle East and do science there. But one of the difficulties, let's say, in Somalia, which is my home country right now, for example, is that they just got out of civil war and the country now is rebuilding, basically. Now, if you list this, a scientist goes there and wants to open a lab or something, there's no funding. There's nothing. And there's no knowledge about research, the importance of research. Like in the United States, the government funds a lot of research. And that just shows you why the government cares about research and the society accepts research in some in some capacity. So I think that is lacking in developing countries. And that I thought that was a really a, a big problem. Uh, and, and, uh, and if I want to do that, I wanted to be able to work in a, a, a uh, in let's say CDC or somewhere that I can facilitate uh, scientific advancement. That way, if someone as a scientist wants to come to the country, there's fun, there's a lot of opportunities there. So because science is like a backbone of, of the everything that we do. And I think that is really lacking. And that's why I, I was reflecting, okay, based on that premise, what can I do you know, that could prepare me uh, to do that? And, uh, and I decided to do a, a, a project that's a little bit unique because it, it, it has a basic science, it has more of a patient clinical aspect, and lastly, it has a, a policy FDA 
aspect to it as well. Three aims, basically. Uh, what I'm doing is that um, basically uh, I'm working with regenerative medicine uh, treatments. One thing I'm saying uh, or my argument here is that typically we as, uh, as scientists or folks, we focus a lot on technology advancement and, and all that stuff. We But after the technology comes to market, we say, oops, there's health disparities. There's this, there's that. We need to address that. Why not anticipate ahead of time and say, okay, we know this will exist. But when technology comes to market, this research has to be done already ahead of time. So when the technology comes to market, people already can do interventions. Like we see, we saw that with COVID-19 mRNA. When the technology came to market, people like were skeptical, like, you know, and all that stuff. If many research was done ahead of time to prepare people, what is mRNA research, all that stuff, I, I will thought like the responses or the, the treatment were being better. Uh, compared to what we had. Basically, I'm working with regenerative medicine treatments, which is our coming to markets. And these treatments are PRP, uh, platelet-rich plasma, for knee osteoarthritis, um, CAR-T for uh, uh, cancer immunotherapy, and apligraft for diabetic foot ulcers, and a dry eye serum for uh, 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 dry eye uh, disease. So these are current new regenerative medicine treatments that are coming to market that are currently uh, being used in, let's say, in some clinic and all that stuff. And these are early products, and we need to understand. First, I want I, one thing. I have three aims, basically. I'm saying that well, let's use these regenerative products that we have and do the research and see the barriers and document the barriers in case in a couple of years when regenerative medicine becomes a standard care of treatments and many of the treatments become available, we already know some idea of the barriers for, to regenerative medicine. So uh, my first aim is going to be looking in multiple clinics in the United States who are giving these treatments, just getting the lay of the land, who is currently getting these kind of treatments, uh, their uh, demographics, their age, all the stuff. And I feel, and I'm gathering a lot of factors such as race, ethnicity, socioeconomics, and never, this is the gap in research. No, no one looked at uh, these kind of uh, factors in terms of regenerative medicine accessibility. Everyone focuses on funding it, researching it, making it really cool. But how about when it comes available? Nobody's doing their research. So that's another side of the coin that I'm, it's like dark and nobody focuses on it. I'm, I'm focusing on it. And, and so that's the first aim, documenting currently what we have in the United States, multiple clinics. Um, I, I'm partnering with multiple clinics in different regions of the United States and I'm talking to many clinics and BIs to establish a, a protocol like an RP and to do this kind of research and gather all these registries of data and all that stuff. So that's the first aim. That will give us answers in multiple factors. And I'm not excluding any factor because each community has one specific factor that may, that may care about. For example, in Somali community, one of the reasons why uh, uh, COVID vaccination was low, for example, was that people thought COVID-19 had a, a pork uh, materials in it, and that was against the religion. So once that was explained and uh, addressed, the vaccination rate increased. So each community has a specific factor that may limit their accessibility. So we can never assume uh, for all. So that's why I'm doing everything, all the factors, basically. The second aim after we do that now comes to basically interview. Um, so the first one was qualitative. The second one is now uh, first one was quantitative. The second one is qualitative. We're going to do interviews with physicians and patients, basically, because sometimes we learn that there are uh, physician bias, but also 
we also learned that patients may have a personal barrier that we might not be able to get it from the data or from the database. So talking to the patient themselves, why they got the regenerative medicine treatments, what helped them, or why do they think they, they didn't want to get it? These specific questions will help us answer if there's a barrier or facilitator to regenerative medicine. So that's the second aim, uh, which is interviewing patients and um, physicians. The third aim now is going to be the coolest one, in my opinion, which is uh, taking the first aim and the second aim and do, doing something. I think I, I, I'm the first one to do it. It's like a policy aim uh, recommendation to state and federal level. So basically, I'll do a, a policy analysis. Uh, I'm thinking I'll, I'll probably take in a policy course, do a policy analysis, and see uh, the current policy that helps the treatments or prohibit the treatments. Not only that, I'll look at like price, coverage, insurance, all that stuff. And that way, my data and what's out there can be combined into a memo or a, a policy recommendation that I can give it to medical centers um, statewide or maybe a, a federal level, who knows? So that is the th third aim. Uh, and I think the inspiration for this is that if, if these kind of documentations are really powerful, single-handedly, they can change a lot of stuff. For example, PRB was not covered. PRB was an uh, out-of-pocket product, right? It, it was tough. But uh, a scientist in Mayo that I was talking to literally did this kind of research that I'm doing for uh, wound care. So he was, she showed PRB effective for wound care. And now Medicaid, they put it in the coverage because of his data. And now means that many people have access to that treatments, basically. So this kind of documentation or research, I think, are really powerful in terms of seeing they can create change a lot, you know. So I think that's the overall overview of the aims. And um, I think it's just that it's a little bit different. It's a little bit unique. And I like it, which is cool. So... As Beyond the Nest grows, we would like to hear from you. Raptor alumni are encouraged to visit this episode's show notes for how to get in touch and share your UMR journey. Now, let's get back to Muhammad and Professor Olson as they discuss lab rotations and undergraduate research. This is so exciting to catch up because when I first met you, you were set upon medical school. Yep. And it was a difficult transition. I recall you struggling internally when you came to realize you liked research, but you were doing yep. basic research. You've done a lot yes. of basic research project yep. projects. Yep. So you've transitioned from medical. And then I thought you were going to stay more in the basic. And yes. then you decided that you switched to the translational um, program yep. at Mayo Clinic. And now it's yep. having thoughts. So it's like you, you've yep. evolved over time. You had to do rotations. So how yeah. you, yes. whose lab did you pick and how did you choose them? And how did you yep. prefer to settle? I remember your advice. You said that rotations are the best time like to go to the lab and learn and the skills and if you join a lab, you won't have that. But I remember exactly your words. You, you exactly said that. You, you said that take advantage of that and, and don't limit it. I did almost five rotations. You did. You <laughs> so, did take advantage of it. Yeah. So <laughs> I did five rotations. And, and not only that, during the five rotations, I communicated and made connections with the PIs. And some of them actually became part of my TAC members. So I take advantage of that as well. So the first rotation with, with Dr. Peter Harris uh, and Dr. Carl, uh, Carl Assessment, which is who I was, the lab that I was in, which is more of a basic science, working with ballistic kidney disease, and I love it. And I did that for all undergrad and two years as a post back, and I love that. Um, but I remember telling myself, because I, 
uh, even I said that in my capstone, I'm the type that if I feel comfortable in one thing, I stick with it, you know, and, and move on and, and say, okay, I don't have to do all that stuff, you know, but one thing I learned what you said and from, you know, capstone experience that it's okay to, you know, let's say that this is great. Let's see other stuff, you know, and then compare and you can pick, you know? So that's what I did. The second uh, uh, lab rotation, I did also a basic science, which is with Dr. Ecker. I, it was more of a, um, a genome engineering with zipperfish. Um, so I wanted to combine basically do uh, genome engineering. And I love the, the, the lab rotation. I worked with Dr. Clark, which is uh, him and Dr. Ecker, they worked together. So it was really awesome. I, I spent actually extra couple weeks in the rotation because I really liked it. After that, uh, uh, I said, okay, these are both basic science. Now I wanna check uh, the other spectrum of, of the translation research. The third rotation, I picked Dr. Lewis Roberts, which is, uh, he, he worked with the hepatocellular carcinoma um, uh, with the Somali community and he does all that kind of research. So it was super cool to see what, this kind of research is done because I never done this kind of research before. But during that time, I was reflecting myself. I was saying, okay, I know if I pick whatever, I'll be comfortable. You know, I like all of them. But the question is now, uh, and this question, typically, I, 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 for my experience, PhDs typically don't ask these questions in long term. You know, everyone's like, okay, finish your PhD, then you can think about what you want to do. But I'm like, I can't do that. You know, this is my nature to uh, like see in a vague way where I'm going, like what I want to do in the future. And I, I wanted, as I said, to open a lab in my home country. Really. And But I saw this difficulty and uh, I was inspired that I think maybe I can take my skills, uh, speaking multiple languages and living in multiple culture, multiple countries. I think uh, I can take this skill that I have with the skill of research and do something good. And, and that's why after the third lab rotation, I said, okay, um, I'm, I'm now more interested in more of a clinical uh, and translational research. Now I need to find a BI or a project or something, someone that can do that. And finally, I did a fourth uh, 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 rotation with uh, Dr. Zubin Masters. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he, he basically uh, works, uh, he does the um, research conduct classes and he's more of a, a bioethicist regenerative medicine scientist and he done wider range of research he worked in the government too uh, so that was something i was interested i told him that already that i have i want a policy aim in my uh, research because that's something i'm interested in and he was like yeah i worked in, in policy I, i'm from canada for years you know and then i came back to academia and 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 i was able to help you so we connected and we facilitated a conversation and after that, I did a, a fifth rotation, but one to two weeks for the, of that rotation, I decided that I wanted uh, to join the fourth lab, which is with Dr. Zubin Masters. I joined uh, basically January uh, of last year. I joined a little bit earlier, so. So you're at this stage of, if you're a year in roughly, at the stage yep. of forming your committee and your support systems, right? Or is, I, that, or yep. is it done or you're still forming it? Yeah, yeah. So because since I was in Mayo, I'm a little bit ahead of, ahead of the my current cohort. So they are currently uh, uh, organizing their TAC committee. and But I already did that last year and I I held literally my first TAC committee meeting, so which is went really well. And they really liked the project. They gave me a lot of feedback. Um, one feedback that I 
it got was to diversify my sample because we know that Mayo people who come to Mayo are from same type of people, you know, who have money, all that stuff. So that's why the idea of uh, most, uh, partnering with multiple clinics and all that stuff was uh, an idea that I came up with and I'm currently implementing. So you came from actually a very, not a linear background. And mm-hmm. I know that you didn't come, you're not like our normal UMR students coming mm-hmm. straight to us. So would you yep. elaborate upon how of you course. did that? Of course, of course. So um, when I came to America, um, I came in as a high school, almost end of high school. I, I wasn't able to speak English. So I only knew yes and no, that's it during a, a junior year in high school and people were preparing for ACT and exams and, and applying for college. It was really impossible. So that's why I had to take extra year in high school to get good in English. And I, I obviously bombed the ACT exam. I did not do well because I, I didn't even understand the word what, you know, in, in, the, in the exam. And I remember asking, what does this mean? So uh, after that, uh, I, did research and I realized community colleges do not require ACT. So I said, okay, the next step for me now, while I'm learning English, because if I want to pick a science uh, knowledge or math, I can just learn it overnight. But language takes time. It takes a while and you can never learn it overnight. That's something I, I had to accept, you know? So I, the next step for me was that to do a community college. So that's why I decided to go, even though I had a perfect GBA from high school, I could have applied for any, but I knew that I wasn't going to do well. And even I didn't have an ACT. So I applied to RCTC and I did two years there. And I knew that I was interested in healthcare, medicine, MD, MD, PhD. That's all I knew. Um, not actually not MDD, only MD. Um, so after RCTC, I came to UMR and uh, I said, okay, I need to now do the next two years to do a bachelor's. And I surveyed and I, I, I looked at UMR, I came to UMR, I was like, wow, next to Mayo, small class, this is amazing. You know, this is what I want. <laughs> and also, because one thing I know is also is that having a small class and more discussions I, I, I thought that is my advantage because that will help me more have a conversation with people, uh, develop my English. Because the first two years that I did in RCTC was really, it's like a big, even though it's a community college, I feel like it was like just people show up to their class. They just listen to lectures and they leave, you know? But UMR was more of a discussion project, team management, all that stuff. And I really, that really developed me. And even now in Mayo right now, people are surprised by our skills. Like the way we organize, meet, discuss, and even facilitate a conversation is, is a training that we, is unspoken training that UMAR gives and we don't say a lot about, and we need to kind of share that. So pretty much after that, I did two years in UMAR and then from two plus two as a transfer student and graduated in 2018. It's already been that long. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, time flies, doesn't it? When you were at UMR, I had the privilege of working with you on some side projects because you were very active and you did a couple impact the innovative. I was going to come to that dance. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Curious yes. Curious. Yes. Yeah. If I had to say now the origin of Muhammad's story in terms of research, like if we need to go back to the origin is the impact program and you were the mentor for it. So I think that program was like, oh my gosh, that was the program that almost introduced me to research. And we wrote a grant, we did a posters, we um, submitted it, we were selected for oral presentations, we presented, oh my gosh. And we did that for two years. And the second year we also got to present, but we never won one. So, but it was amazing experience. And I think that was really great. And I, I, that's why I'm always thankful to you because your mentorship was always key 
and everything that I'm doing here right now, I always remember like you were one of the pillars that helped me to get to this point. And the impact program was really the amazing program. And even the, when we presented it now, looking back, I now understand the significance of it, you know, because I'm doing now more presentations, more um, proposals and grants. And I'm like, wow, did we just write a grant? You know, I didn't even know that that was a grant. You're very flattering and I'm very thankful, but I have to tell you that I've had a lot of impact students as well who have said, or, or students write grants who, um, who, who go in a different route. You actually took a, you like, you found out you liked it. Whereas I've mm-hmm. had other students who are like, nope, this was a good experience. Never again. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's been awesome. laughs> yep. Yep. Also, another thing that I want to mention is that that was the beginning of my research, but also at the end. I did also with you the uh, epigenetic class, the epigenetic. Oh, Martin Fernandez. Oh, yeah. that, that class was, oh my gosh. That, and we went to Mayo and we present that. I think that class should be a mandatory. I also really enjoy that class because it's authentic research experience. And we were able to have, you know, mm-hmm. partnerships with primary investigators and technicians. And we had Stephanie yeah. Sefkin, who was a student. So we were yes. more of a yes. holistic experience. Yes, like, yes. It was so that yeah that 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 class was really great and I think one thing I'm doing now because I want to improve research in the future one thing I'm noticing right now if you ask a ten year old about do you know what a physician is or medicine they will tell you yeah I know I you know I know the knowledge of the field as early as possible will most likely sometimes may increase the popularity or knowledge about that field so. The fact that I learned about research and I did research literally in college level, that is, I think, not really a a good uh, thing. So that's why I think this class, making it more and and trying to show it, showcase research more, I think is key. Well, as you're developing in your program, and let's say you have like a little bit that you can share with undergrads, we can make a directed study together. No, no. Yeah, I mean, that's something I'm, I'm really interested in because... That's yeah. something I, I want to work on when I, let's say, go back to my home country or here. One of my goals is to uh, see the Gabriel. And one thing I found based on my own investigation or research is that if you ask a, a young children or any person about medicine or other field, engineer, they will tell you, yeah, we know that. And knowledge about the field is key. If people knew about what research is, what is the concept of research, why research is important, I think people might develop the passion to just move forward and ignore maybe the difficulties of in research. And I think that's the key. So even though like in physician and other careers, there are burnout, there are other challenges, but people overlook it. So I think that is key, installing that curiosity, the seeking of uh, uh, science or knowledge. I think that that's what I'm currently now doing with Riverside, with elementary, I go there. You're still talk. with Riverside. Yes, I, I go Wait. there. I, yes, and actually I have a, a podcast next week with them. You, <laughs> yes. You're with Riverside. Did you also do Somali Rebuild here? Yes, yes. Do you still work with Somali Rebuild? Yes, yes. And I went to the school as well last month and I spoke about science and basically uh, in explaining and made it so cool. People were like, yeah, I want to be a scientist. Like almost I had 10 people scream, I want to be a scientist. <laughs> Good. They're amazing. Yeah. Such a yes. profession. Yes. With Minnesota's state legislative session just around the corner, be sure to join University of Minnesota advocates for the U's 2022 legislative kickoff on Tuesday, January 25th. 
Held virtually and featuring all five campuses, including UMR, the kickoff will share the U's goals and priorities for the upcoming legislative session, and you'll also hear from the Minnesota State Capitol Press Corps on what to expect from policymakers in St. Paul. Please visit advocates.umn.edu to sign up. Are you able to find a work-life balance and to um, still, I know that you're very connected with your family. So have you been able to navigate because you're volunteering plus you're in graduate school and I know you have family. How are you fitting all these things together? I think that is a very important question. And one thing I, I'm I always, one of the reasons why I decided to, Beside coming to UMR, one of the reasons was to stay close to the family, you know, because we, we Rogers is our uh, first home in the United States when, I, when we came here. But also after looking for the PhD programs, I also, Mayo was a good option with all its coolness, but also closest to the family was also another key. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm very heavily involved with my family. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I live with my family. So, and I think that is the, uh, it's better in terms of because you know BHD stipend is not that uh, you know much you know it's just you can live on it, but why not just you know save some money and if you want to do something else and to do it with it um, and other projects as well so so yeah so that's uh, I think it's just tough sometimes you know uh, since sometimes you I work from home and sometimes I go to the uh, uh, my office. Sometimes it's very difficult to see, you know, where is the, where is the time, you know, uh, am I, am I supposed to stop right now? And, and, you know, and one thing, so it's, it's, it's very challenging and I'm managing it and put it, it pretty well, I think I say it. So do you have time for hobbies? So in yes. the family work and you're volunteering, you have like yep. a- walk, I, gym and, you know, hang out with friends and, and, and yeah, it's just the normal. Uh, it's just that, you know, uh, Dividing the time, I think, is the key. And knowing the outcome from that time, let's say I have, let's say from now to 5 p.m. today, I want to do this, you know. After 5 p.m., I need to catch up with a friend. And after that, you know, let's grab a lunch and all that stuff. So knowing just and dividing the time and knowing that you, you are capable of fulfilling that, I think that is the key. So oftentimes graduate students are stressed like mm-hmm. extremely stressed and you seem very calm so how come you're able to stay calm while your classmates are probably not naturally i've always been optimistic person i think also for my back home experience you know based on what i lived before like living in saudi arabia or different countries which life was tough education was not available you weren't able to go to high school or college the only option is you do a labor work even though my my family, my someone, if you have a degree, you can never use it because you can never become a citizen. So I have all that experience, you know, and then moving from there to Jordan to seek refugee um, and then coming in the United States as a refugee and learning the English as a third language. So all that experience is in my mind and I always compare it to that. So that's the reference, you know, group or the reference idea. Comparing to that, this is nothing, you know, this is a piece of cake. I can I can do it. You know, this is not going to hold me, you know? So I think that is the key. Is your family supportive of it or? Yeah. Yeah. My family uh, love it. You know, and I think that's one of the cool things. Sometimes uh, a lot of my cohort, like it's very difficult. Sometimes if you, if your spouse or it's not a scientist, you know, it's very difficult to say, okay, I'm working on that mechanism. I'm working on that molecule and doing the rats and all that stuff. 
they will not be able to understand it, you know? And that's what I kind of struggled when, when I was working with uh, Dr. Carly Sussman and PKD. I loved, I loved the project, but my family had no clue what I was doing um, because they are not scientists. But now they understand it, you know? They, uh, I, I explained them in a simple terms, you know? Why we need to do this kind of research, you know? Why this is kind of research, if it's out there, when the technology comes to market, we can prevent what happens like in COVID, you know? And they saw the COVID, the disparity in the vaccination, the disparity in the disease. And that was like a lot alarming to them as well. So I'm like, yeah, this is similar to COVID, but I'm doing it in a regenerative medicine. So that's amazing. Also the ability to communicate uh, your scientific is awesome. The general public is, is awesome. A lot of I think I think that's one advantage that I think I have, uh, you know, to, is, is very important sim to simplify. And this also may have a three-minute thesis. I don't know if you, and I participated to that with that multiple times, you know, and um, that gave me a lot of skills, you know, I because I'm, I go to IMSDs, you know, which is a, a weekly meeting, which actually in half an hour, basically we practice and present our research and all that stuff, so it's cool. What are, what's your goal after graduation? One thing I, I want to do after graduation is that I want to do uh, the triple AS um, Washington uh, Science Policy and uh, uh, Fellowship. So uh, basically, this is a, a two-year fellowship where uh, scientists or PhD uh, students who are interested in science policy and uh, uh, in that realm to do that two-year internship. After you do that two years, the doors are wide open. You can do exactly policy, government, FDA, whatever you want, you know, because now you speak the policy language. Um, and I'm kind of preparing for that as well because I'm laying my project in a way that, okay, I, I thought about this and that this is what I want to do and, and what I want to work on. So. Thank you to Muhammad Adani and Professor Rachel Olson for their deep dive into research and life as a PhD candidate. And thank you for listening to Beyond the Nest. Beyond the Nest is produced by University of Minnesota Rochester Alumni Relations and edited by Marshall Saunders with Minnesota Podcasting. Check this episode's show notes for how to stay in touch. And we'll be back next month for another conversation with an engaging Raptor alum. <laughs>